Okay, oh, we're live. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to get started with our questions, but uh, let me update you a little bit on next week's session first. Uh, uh, next week, Dr. Alice Hontella from the University of Lethbridge will speak to the risks and benefits of pesticides. Her title is Toxicology of Pesticides, Mechanisms of Action and Impacts on Health. And I would also like to again point out that more information related to Dr. Green's talk and other talks can be found on SACPA's website. You'll be able to hear the audio of his session and you can past sessions are posted there as well there's also an online commentary blog that you could make use of and I don't think very many people do make use of that yet and there's a suggestion box outside where you can contribute your ideas for speakers uh, today we've learned about some of the benefits and risks to Alberta's and Canada's economy and environment associated with the challenges of getting our landlocked Alberta oil to market. Our speaker is Dr. Kenneth Green, and I'll ask him to come back towards the podium to entertain your questions and questioners. Please come to the microphone. Where, where, oh, it's right here. Boy, right in the speaker's face. Remember to state your name. Keep your comments brief and your questions succinct, and please, just one or two uh, at a time because we're kind of old and we can't remember any more than that. At least I can't. Ken probably can. And uh, if you have some additional questions, perhaps later on we'll be able to recycle you. Ken? Great, thanks, man. Well, thanks again. Thank you for lunch, doing That was great. Um, I'd love to have your, your questions. Um, uh, anything you want to you talk about, it's fine with me. So this time is yours. Hi, Ken. My name is Ken Peterson. Ken, can you uh, talk a little bit about how the American Free Trade Agreement plays into this? Because it seems like uh, Trans-Canada Pipeline is... Uh, making waves about yeah. challenging the, uh, the North American Free Trade Agreement if this, if this thing doesn't happen, or even if it does happen, the delay involved. Yeah. Um, so the question is, how does, how does Keystone um, relate to NAFTA, and what could happen with regard to Canada challenging any decision on Keystone based on uh, NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement? And... Um, that's a new. That's a new topic. Just came up in the last couple of months. In fact, I spoke to one of the reporters who was was writing about it, but I got bumped for a quote by somebody else with the government. They always prefer people with the government. Um, it's an interesting question because NAFTA does specify that uh, be, be, when NAFTA was written, the point was to guarantee that America would have access to Canadian oil, and. <clears throat> And so uh, there were direct provisions in NAFTA that required both governments to facilitate infrastructure to transport oil back and forth across the border, uh, or at least in this case from Canada to the United States. Um, 
And so there are those provisions in NAFTA that require it. Now, the question is whether or not there, – there are two questions. One, whether the U.S. Uh, is going to do something obvious enough that would really create legal grounds for that by actually saying no for the wrong reason. Because also under NAFTA, you can refuse to do things with other countries if you don't think that they're matching your environmental standards. And part of NAFTA also requires Canada to match the U.S. environmental regulations and vice versa, as long as they get tighter. And so if the U.S. comes forward and says, well, we've tightened our environmental rules and we don't think yours – we don't – right, this doesn't fit, they can reject the project for that reason. So um, anyway, the, the, the short answer is – there are rules, uh, provisions in NAFTA that, that suggest the U.S. should be working to get agreement, but they're not. The Canadian government has said it's not interested in challenging under NAFTA because if they do that, it opens up other, other issues as well, other cans of worms uh, that they don't want to get into. Um, and until a decision is rendered, nobody, has, nobody can do anything anyway. And the U.S. so far has done nothing but delay. They have not said no. They have not said yes. Um, and the, the reasons why they aren't saying yes are they, – they have reasons for both not saying yes or no. If they say uh, – and this gets into U.S. politics, which I studied for quite a while when I was in the States. Um, if they say yes, uh, they alienate their environmental voters as they're coming to a midterm election in the United States. Um, and they also galvanize people here in Canada who would say, all right, if the United States says no, says no to the pipeline, I should say, if the U.S. says no – it would galvanize people in Canada to say, okay, we have got to get other ways to the east and west coast. And so the environmentalists don't want to know, they don't want to yes, and they want limbo, and that's what they have. Uh, Terry Shellington. Uh, Ken, thank you very much for being here, and I appreciate your crisp, clear uh, statements that, oh, as Duane says, leave lots of fertile ground for comment. Uh, it seemed to me to some extent you were beating on a straw man with your uh, pipeline comments in that, uh, insofar as I understand the discussion Canadians are having uh, uh, around the Northern Gateway, the issue has to do with the route of the pipeline. And questions have been raised about uh, Kitimat Harbor, for example, mm -hmm. and about going through native land. Yeah. And I haven't heard much discussion about uh, the feasibility of alternate routes. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I presume Ru uh, Prince Rupert is more expensive, but there's a recognized harbor. Mm -hmm. Could you comment on why this particular route and what the implications would be of going to, say, Prince Rupert? Uh, well, I mean, uh, <clears throat> the easiest question, since there's going to be an infinite number of routes for almost any kind of pipeline, right, is that uh, chances are good there were existing infrastructure that, that can join up that makes it less expensive uh, and also more direct, right? So if I'm building a pipeline, uh, my first choice is always going to be uh, the shortest distance between two points, right, which is a straight line. So if I can go like this, that's going to be my first choice because it's likely to save me uh, – it'll save travel time, it saves money, it saves distance that I have to cover. It also reduces environmental impact because it, I'm, I'm taking a less circuitous route, um, less materials, less everything, and I get a straight pipeline – easier to manage, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there are alternate routes, uh, including some up through, uh, up through Yukon to get to, to Alaskan ports um, and down to Washington State to get, into, uh, to, get to Washington ports, Washington, uh, the U.S. state of Washington. Um, 
but the the Northern Gateway plan uh, was basically the one that was that raised capital because it was seen as most efficient. Um, the the biggest issue seems to be over. Um, uh, I would say is political. The National Energy Board basically raised a bunch of objections that ha challenges that have to be met with regard to safety and security and things like that. And there's no question it's challenging to build pipelines over mountains and things like that. Um, but anywhere else in BC, you're going to have different First Nations groups, right? So um, it's every every path is going to find its obstacles. And there, there have been two other proposals. Uh, there's at least one proposal to build um, a very large upgrader in Kitimat that would uh, then allow the shipping of um, synthetic petroleum, which, because it's so much lighter than bitumen, than the oil sand product, diluted bitumen, uh, it won't sink into the waters. It would float and just basically evaporate uh, if you spilled any of it. And so it would protect the coastal waters. There would be no heavy oil going in the water. Um, and that's proposals backed up by a – there's a wealthy person who's put up, um, I think, offered $5 billion, plus there's some matching money offered from China, but not enough to get the job done. Um, and the problem with refineries and upgraders is that they have – they're really very poor economics for doing your own refining. And we can talk about that if you want. But Because people raise that a lot, saying, why don't we refine it ourselves? And there are very good reasons for that. Um, but then now there's a brand-new proposal by a, a coalition of First Nations – to build an even bigger pipeline, it would actually carry twice the capacity of the Northern Gateway, uh, as well as a huge um, upgrader and refiner to be built somewhere either uh, just past the BC border in BC or on the Alberta side of the border to uh, convert the oil into the bitumen into synthetic oil or synthetic fuel, which would then be, be shipped uh, to the coast. So. Um, there are alternate pathways. They all have challenges. Uh, Northern Gateway is probably the best known, the best understood. Uh, my name is Van Christou. <clears throat> uh, thank you, Dr. Green, for being here today my and pleasure. presenting us with a, uh, a great presentation on an important subject. Thank you. Um, in your presentation, you mentioned the controversy that surrounds fracking and how that's influencing the decision on the pipeline. Mm -hmm. Of course it will. Um, can you give us, illuminate at all, on the materials that these companies are putting into the fracking? Yeah. Uh, I have had a great deal of difficulty in finding out exactly what they put into the ground, and uh, they protect a lot of it on the basis that they have uh, patents, but it seems to me the, uh, that our governments have yeah. been quite lenient in letting them get away with putting anything they want into, into the ground. Yeah. Um, so the question is um, a very good one. Uh, all right, what's in that fracking? What's in the fracking solution they put into the ground uh, to get natural gas and, and oil out of tight tight deposits? And um, the answer is: so first, you have to step back and ask, what are they injecting? Uh, overall, they're injecting water and sand. That's ninety nine percent of what's being injected uh, underground. And I, I'll step even further back. How many of you understand how hydraulic fracturing works? That's a good number. For those who don't, it's actually remarkably simple. You drill a hole down about a mile. You drill a hole over about a mile. You fracture the formation of shale that's underground that's holding a bunch of natural gas and hydrocarbons. 
um, with a pressurized hydraulic, pressurized liquid, essentially water and sand, and 1% of chemicals. And I just, I'm just reading through a Canadian, uh, an interesting report by the Canadian Academy of Sciences. They had a, a very illuminating section on this exact question. And by the way, if you want to get a hold of me after this, uh, ken.green at fraserinstitute.org will get you there. You can also find my writing and stuff on the Fraser website. But so what's in the what's in the um, what's in the fluids? And it's really remarkably clever when you think about this. If you put sand in water, what happens? It sinks. If you want to get the sand all the way underground and into these little crevices that you introduce to prop them open, that's what the sand is used for. You ram the sand in under pressure. And the sand stays there, holding the shale, the layers of shale apart so you, the natural gas can come out. So you want the sand to stay suspended in the water, but the sand doesn't really want to stay suspended in the water. So they add something to thicken the water, and one of those things is guar gum. It's the stuff that thickens your toothpaste. It also thickens all sorts of glue you use around your house. It thickens your household cleaning products, commonly used. Um, that thickens up the water. It holds the sand. They drive it underground. Then they put another chemical in that thins out the guar gum so that the sand falls out of the water. And then the water comes back out. Um, that's also a common household product. Salt uh, is one of the things that breaks the, the, the gelling of the water. They use salt, sodium chloride, table salt. Um, and there are other, a few other chemicals in there. There are things that kill um, bacteria because the bacteria uh, that are found in the, in the, the earth would sometimes eat some of those chemicals, just as you eat guar gum and you eat some of those chemicals in food and in other things. Uh, they would eat it and reduce the effectiveness. So they put some things in to kill bacteria. Some ant basically uh, the same kind of antiseptic you use to wipe your hands, the, right, the um, hand cleaning gels, things like that. Um, but they are different for every single formation. The exact balance of what goes in has to be tailored differently. Like every salad dressing, bottle of salad dressing you make, you're going to adjust the flavor because sometimes the vinegar is too strong and sometimes your spices are old and sometimes, right, you, you, want a different you need a different flavor. They're proprietary because that's how they compete with each other is on how effective they are. And so just like Coca-Cola, the formula is secret. There's a site website called Fract, Fract Facts, I believe it is. The actual ingredients themselves are posted on the web. Uh, there's no secrecy about what's going into the ground. It's just the exact ratio of the mixtures that are secret just as Coca-Cola is and just as, you know, the secret formula for, for Cadbury chocolate uh, is in a vault somewhere. You're not going to get that out of the companies without paying them for it. And that's, so that's the answer. The, that's the frac fluid issue. Is that enough? That good? Okay. Uh, <clears throat> I'm Trevor Page. Um, in your presentation, you mentioned that Canadians do expect the government to regulate, regulate certain things, including the oil industry. Now, here in Alberta, our regulator, the AER, is 100% financed by the oil industry. So how, uh, how do you expect the regulator to actually regulate? That's uh, yeah. number one. Okay. Secondly, the okay. AER itself uh -huh. has indicated that it doesn't have the capacity to check. And therefore, we're faced with a situation where we're relying, relying on industry to actually report on itself. Mm -hmm. Now, do you have any comments on that? Sure. Um, uh, since, that's a, a great, great question. So, where does all of the wealth for all of government come from? 
Uh, it comes from taxes. Right? It comes from taxpayers. And so it's not only true that the oil sector is regulated based on money that it pays to regulators. Everything is regulated based on money we pay to regulators, right? We pay money to politicians. We pay money to all the agencies in Ottawa. They're, they're not out there selling widgets for a profit and using their profit to fund themselves. They're all funded by people with an interest that they're supposed to reflect, right? So that's the whole nature of government. Now, uh, it's true that Alberta, the, the revenues come, a large part of the revenues come from the sector, but the votes don't come from there. The votes for the politicians don't necessarily come from there. And so there are checks and balances. Uh, but again, this is, this is a great question because it's one of the things that gets to the competence of government. Hey, pardon me? Well, what's, it, what's, how, what's the key? What's the, okay, what's the core of your question? How can they be fair or how can they be... It doesn't want to be sued. So I, I carry one of these. I, I, car, I can, so, so I, I carry one of these. Real, real quick answer. I carry, how many of you have one of these? Have a phone, a cell phone. Right? How many of you have one of these in your pocket when you put gasoline in your car? Do you think there's an international regulatory body that checks that this phone made in China won't spark and, and ignite? No. There are standards organizations, but there, there's no one body that regulates these things. The, we consume things every day that have elements of risk to them. We, we're always going to. But the question remains, which is, does a company want to be sued out of existence? And let's give you an ex example. Um, anybody here of a company called British Petroleum? Why? Because they, they had an oil platform blow up. The Deepwater Horizon oil platform blew up. And it's cost them some 40, uh, 40 well, 40, I think it was a million, million dollars at least, several billion overall. They had to put, away, put up several billion dollars. You think they wanted that out of their reputation? They care. They, they've just, half of them got, they were fired. The other half left, you know, have, have, they've moved and been bought up, pieces of them have been bought up by other, country, other companies. That companies have a reputation. It's the same with governments. Governments don't want to get caught doing illegal things. Companies don't want to get caught doing illegal things. Um, and by and large, again, if, we, if you think of all the things you use in your daily life that are not inspected, it's going to be 99% of everything you use that is not, has not been certified by a government agency uh, in its current combination of things as perfectly safe for you to use. It's not possible to have that level of safety. Yep, maybe we could move on to oh, a sorry. new line of... of Questions here, and perhaps since uh, Ken is going to be here for quite a while this afternoon, perhaps uh, uh -oh. Ken and uh, Trevor could uh, try and clarify their uh, questions and answers a little on a little more personal basis. Uh, go ahead, please. Yeah. My name is John Kalpas. Good to meet you. Uh, you made a lot of reference to pipelines, but I don't. If I missed it, I, I don't know. You made no reference to. Uh, within Canada pipeline to the east and how do you do some studies or get Quebec and Ontarians and maybe even New Brunswickers persuaded that it would be to their net benefit and our country's net benefit uh, maybe to work on that in maybe alongside of or in lieu of uh, you know yep. all the stoppers on on the ones that you did reference. Right. Uh, the other part question I have and a comment is 
there's mm -hmm. hardly any publicity or information to the media or to the environmentalists or uh, the public at large on the hundreds of petroleum derivatives that we daily use as consumers mm -hmm. that we're perhaps not even aware of, mm. that wind and solar and even hydro have no way of competing or replacing. Mm. Okay, so the, the, there's, there are two parts to the question. The first part was, well, what about energy? What about pipelines going to the east um, that I didn't mention? There are several proposals to do that, Energy East being one of them, and there are others. Um, how do you persuade Canadians that this is in their interest? And that's a great question because, um, because I think it shows you how things have changed in the past, which is in the past would people have, have objected to railways when, when Canada was growing and building railways across the country? Would people have said, no, I don't want you to go through my province. I want you to go around. Or if you're going to move goods through my province to anybody else's province, I want a tariff as if I'm my own country. Uh, the same for the highway system. Uh, would the country have ever been built? And the answer is almost certainly not. And the same is true for the United States. There was an understanding that critical infrastructure was something that benefits the entire country as a whole and as a national identity that seems to be undermined uh, in recent years where people are saying, well, no, let's go back to the bad old days of every province for itself, and we'll put up tariffs, and we'll put up, we'll put up way stations at the border, and if something's moving across, we're going to charge, you know, if you're moving east to west, we'll charge you. If you're moving west to east, we'll charge you. And, and British Columbia, if you want to move your goods to market through Alberta, we're going to charge you for every train load of, right, of, of produce that moves across the province. It doesn't stop here. We're going we're gonna to levy a fee, and, and that way lies chaos and insanity. And so um, how do you persuade Canadians this is in their interest? Uh, various groups have done the math and shown, as I did, how much goes to pension plans, how much goes to people in jobs, how much goes to other provinces in downstream industries, like the people who build or make the drill bits are not necessarily in Alberta. The people who build, make the metal for the pipeline are not necessarily in Alberta. The pipe fitters and the people working up in Fort McMurray are not necessarily from Alberta. Many of them are sending their income home. Um, you can do all those studies, but at the end of the day, Canadians are going to have to decide if they're Canadians or if they're New Brunswickers or if they're Quebecers or if they're Ontarians or what they are, uh, and whether they want to act in the interest, best interest of the country uh, or purely their province at the expense of the country. And the second question on, on hydrocarbons, um, we could talk about that forever, but a, a lot of you are farmers and farm-based. Um, how many of you use fertilizer or pesticides or chemicals of any sort, right? Wind and solar power will not replace almost any of the things that hydrocarbons that oil does. Um, uh, we could have a whole lecture on that. I could step you through everything sitting at your table, right? The plastic, your, your plastic pitchers, your telephones, the nylon in your clothing, the shampoo you used this morning, which is reformulated oil that's in a bottle made from oil that was uh, labeled, and the glue is made out of oil, and the ink on the label is made out of oil. Uh, so it's true. We, we are as much a hydrocarbon civilization as anything else, and, and other forms of energy won't replace that. Uh, my name is James Moore. Um, the Fraser Institute is incredibly consistent, I've noticed, over its history since it was created as an offset of the Chicago School of Economics with Milton <laughs> Friedman's endorsement. 
And its consistency is that it always has the same conclusion, no matter the subject, which is basically that we'll all be better off if a few greedy sociopaths grab everything for themselves. That's my preamble. Can, can you name it? Uh, the fact, the I'll fact ask you to name one study, you have one study that concludes You have ignored in this presentation, uh, for example, uh, just this week, there's great concern about the melting, the rapid and unprecedented melting of the West Antarctic ice sheet. Even the World Bank is speaking about the necessity of leaving two-thirds of the oil that's already discovered in the ground. And you're advocating accelerating the process. Do you have a question, James? I have a comment. Um, there's a Cree saying, which is only when the last fish has been caught, the last tree cut down, and the last river poisoned, will the white man understand he can't eat money? I would suggest the Fraser Institute would not even understand it then. Thank you. Thank you for your comment. I'd like to point out, uh, in, in, in the fairness, I'd like to point out uh, two things. One, uh, over its 40 years of history, the Fraser Institute has probably published 3,000 studies and books, if not more. I would challenge you to show me one that says, concludes what you just characterized as the entire work of the Institute that we are for, fat cats getting rich at, the other, at other people's expense. Two, I would ask you a personal question. How many times the income of an African is your personal income? And how are you not one of the world's biggest fat cats? Well, you had, your, you had a statement, yeah. so I'll make a counterstatement and then we'll move on. Make the counterstatement. We'll have one uh, more the question. Final, the, the final point is, uh, with all respect to the Cree, um, look out the window. In 1970, air pollution levels were dozens of times what they are today. You'd walk outside, your eyes would burst into tears. If you had asthma, you'd have an asthma attack. Rivers were bursting into flames in the United States and were heavily polluted here in Canada. Areas were being clear-cut and species were being driven to extinction at tremendous rates. We have turned around air pollution trends to the point that in almost uh, virtually everywhere in Canada, the air is completely safe to breathe, no matter how vulnerable you are. We have turned around water pollution levels to the point that you can swim, fish, and, and uh, uh, drink rivers across Canada. We have stopped clear cutting. We have not cut beyond what ecologists say is the allowable amount of timber for a, a well over a decade, if not two. We have established protections for endangered species. We have set aside huge amounts of land for parks and wilderness. We have established uh, tradable quotas for fish that have stopped overfishing on the east and west coasts. If the white man is going to eat the very last fish and cut down the very last tree, he's done a miserable job of it over the 40 years in the United States, in Canada, in Europe, in every single developed country in the world, including Germany, Italy, France, Spain, Australia, China, is working on it. Japan has conquered it. It's completely a reversal of reality to say that we are making things worse. We are, in fact, making things vastly better. You want to see what the results of things are? Go to other countries around the world. Go to China. Go to Beijing and show how the big government system is cleaning up the air. Sorry. Pardon me? Uh, let, I think we've got – if you have oh. a question, Robert, please come to the mic. And I think uh, – Okay. Frank uh, has a quick one this time. Is, mine is, I don't know where, why we're running for time. This is so interesting. But Professor Green, I'm, I'm glad that we heard you here. You, you bandied around one big figure there that we are getting $17 billion from our resources, okay? I have three auditors' reports that tell us we are getting 5.8 from gas, 2.8 from oil, 
and that oil price includes the least money that the government gets, so we're getting zilch. Now, our, our redhead premier just resigned. She's the only one that told the truth that I think, I believe, with a finger and mouth, she said, we got 17 tar sands companies ready to pay the 25%, which means we've been getting 1% all along. All right? But, Secondly, what is it? Have you got a question, Frank? Or uh, I, we're I, we're I, off in a short question. of time. So where do you get your $17.8 billion? Sure. Well, we did a, okay, I'll answer real quick because it's a complicated question. We did a study last year, myself and a senior fellow with the Institute, Jerry Angevine. Very simple. You look at the number of barrels of oil Canada sells. Yes. You look at the price that that oil gets when it's purchased in the United States, which is the only place it goes. What's, it goes the, price to Oklahoma. It, what's the price of that, by the way? We have never been told what we're getting. It fluctuates, from, it fluctuates from day to day. Right? Like what? So, Fra- well, if the world price of oil is $100 a barrel, Frank? the Canadian price could be $80 a barrel, $90 a barrel. Frank? It fluctuates. Okay, and I think you can carry on this discussion Sounds good. after, perhaps. I will yield to the moderator. And uh, one more question, Robert. Please make it very short. <laughs> My name is Likewise, Bob, Ken. Bob Byers. I think you just said that clear-cutting does not occur in Canada. No, it's not. you should not have extensive clear-cutting in Canada. Now, of tree farms, you will have areas that are, the trees were grown for timber. I just, and then cut. I just flew from Victoria to Calgary over the Rocky Mountains on a clear day, and there's tens of thousands of acres of clear-cut. Is there evidence of, you mean evidence of historical clear-cut? You can't put the trees back right away. No, that's correct. There are still areas that were well, clear-cut that have not grown back yet because they're in areas... Those areas were clear-cut within the last 10 years, some of them within the last two years. I, I would have to see that to believe it because it is against... It, it's, the large clear-cutting is, is generally speaking against the law. Look, um, on, look on the plane on the way back to Victoria. Well, no, I'm not going to see your eyes are lying to you. I'd love to. I'd love to see it, and if it's illegal, I'd love. To, I'd be the well, one to report. I'd love to report it to the government. You're, mis- you're misrepresenting what's, what environmental things have occurred. Again, I invite. I, what I would invite you to do is go to the, the Fraser website. We've done reports on this for th- 25 years, taking government data from the government of Canada and the provincial governments, and simply reporting what they have said about environmental trends. Well, you not what environmental use groups your, are saying. Use your own eyes the next time you fly over the Rocky Mountains. We're, uh, we're getting fairly spirited here. And it's good. Thanks very much, Ken, for the... I like spirited. It's good. Right. Thanks very much for coming down to talk to us, Ken. And I, My pleasure. You've clearly raised some uh, issues. Some and I know that you're, he came down on the bus... And he doesn't leave till 5.30. <laughs> and I think maybe by 5.30, uh, Frank and uh, Robert can, and uh, Trevor can perhaps uh, talk some more with you, clarify their questions, and get I'll some be, answers. I'll be glad to for at least some of that four hours. I'm going to have to make sure we pass you a better note next time well, about, you know. We have to be hydrated, too. So. Exactly. That's right. Hydration will help. Thanks very much, and thanks to everybody for your questions. Sorry to be the arbiter of time there, Dwayne.